The children are dismissed to Children's Church. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're going to be in Exodus tonight. I know, how random is that? Exodus chapter 12. When I told my wife on Thursday that Errol had canceled and that I was going to have to preach, already feeling the pressure for the two sermons I was putting together for this weekend, she said, well, what are you, what are you reading in your personal time? I said, well, I'm reading Exodus right now. I'm just finished the Passover. And uh, I decided, hey, I'll just preach the gospel out of the Passover account. We have a wonderful picture of the gospel in Exodus chapter 12 and following. This account of the Exodus from Egypt, the Passover, the lamb that was slain, beautiful, clear, wonderful. And that is what we are going to look at tonight. So, Exodus chapter 12, I am going to read verses 29 through 42. If you're there, say amen. Exodus 12:29 At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. 
It was 1997 in Pacific Beach, California. I was 25 years old. A friend had invited me to church, and I had never been to a Bible-teaching Protestant church before, and I remember it very clearly. Forty were gathered strong in this party town where there are more bars than restaurants, and we were gathered together and we were singing, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lamb that was slain. Rejoice. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the angels sing. For the Lamb that was slain has now been crowned the King. And we sang that song, and I hadn't the foggiest idea what in the world we were singing. Why were we singing about a lamb that had been slain? It seemed like a very strange thing to be singing about. What does this have to do with God? Aren't we here to focus on God? And what is it about this lamb dying that is good news for me or for anyone else that we might sing about it? Well, this afternoon we're going to talk about the lamb that was slain and why this was good news for Israel in the Old Testament, why this has been good news for the world throughout the ages, and why this is good news for you today. Our text this afternoon is one of the most celebrated passages in the Bible by both Jews and Christians, the Exodus from Egypt. This account of God delivering His people from slavery is still celebrated by millions of people all over the world during the Jewish season of Passover. And it's also the clearest Old Testament picture of God's plan for the world to rescue sinners from slavery and from judgment. Now, we know that the Bible is full of typology. We've talked about this before. What I mean is that there are events in the Bible that historically happened, they're accurate, and yet at the same time, they're symbolic or they're representative of some greater spiritual reality. We call that typology. For example, Egypt is a type or a picture of the world system in which we live. Pharaoh is a type of Satan keeping people enslaved. The Israelites are a type of God's people throughout the ages. The Lamb is a type of Christ which provides atonement for the people. The angel of death is a type of the judgment to come. And Canaan, or the promised land, is a type of heaven where God is leading the people out of slavery and towards that inheritance. So, this Passover account, which I trust you are all familiar with, is not only a wonderful record of how God saved Israel out of Egypt in the past, but it is a wonderful picture of God's saving work today. He leads us out of the world from under the power of Satan, providing the necessary atonement that we may escape the judgment to come and that we might be led safely to our heavenly home. And so with that backdrop, I want to walk through just part of chapter 12 today. We're going to hop around a little bit, but I want us to see that in the Passover, we have this wonderful presentation of the gospel. 
So I have a four-point outline for you today. To be saved out of slavery and to be led into the promised land, you need four things. You need the right sacrifice. You need the right application. You need the right preparation. And you need the right execution. So the right sacrifice, the right application, the right preparation, and the right execution. Point number one, the right sacrifice. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make, for, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. <clears throat> so we know in the Old Testament, in Genesis, God made promises to Abraham that he would give him a multitude of offspring that from him would come a great nation, and that this nation would inherit this land that God had promised. And yet, between Abraham and between God fulfilling that promise was 430 years. So there was a detour into the land of Egypt. The Israelites had been slaves in a foreign land for ten generations, and they have been oppressed, and they have cried out to God to deliver them. And God raises up this man Moses as his appointed representative to go into Pharaoh's court and demand that the Israelites be set free, that they may go worship God in the desert. Now, the short version is, I trust you know this story, but I'm just going to give you the cliff notes here. Pharaoh refuses to yield... And in response, God brings plague after plague, nine of them up to this point. And Pharaoh vacillates between deciding I'm going to let the people go and then deciding I'm not going to let the people go. And Moses issues a final warning that there is a judgment coming that is going to top all of the previous judgments. It is the death of the firstborn son. From Pharaoh's firstborn to the slave girl to the cattle in their field. This was God's final action to demonstrate His power over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt, and He would deliver the Israelites from bondage. Now, when we read this account, we tend to think of God separating the good from the bad, don't we? Like the, the Israelites are the good guys and they're in slavery and they are being enslaved by the Egyptians who are the bad guys. And yet, may I remind you, that is not an accurate picture of what's going on here. They're all the bad guys. 
you have bad Egyptians and you have bad Israelites and you have none to the contrary. There was no intrinsic virtue in the Israelites in and of themselves. They didn't have a greater moral character than their Egyptian masters. It's not like God looked down on them and said, oh, those shiny ones down there in Egypt, those are the ones. Or look at them, they're just so irresistible, I can't help myself. They were all bad. They were all under God's judgments. But God chose to save Israel. And He chose to save them because He made a promise. And so for a holy God to deliver a group of sinful people out of a larger group of sinful people, there had to be some kind of atonement made for them. It was necessary for God to purify this people so that they could know God and be forgiven by God. And so what God directed them to do, that He might spare them this judgment to come, was that they needed a right sacrifice. We're told in verse 5 what that sacrifice is. A lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. Now, why are these details important? Well, it had to be a young lamb. It had to be a lamb in the prime of its youth, in the vigor of its life. You couldn't take your 12-year-old lamb that was going to die any time now. It had to be a lamb that was strong and, and cut off in the middle of its life, in the strength of its life. And it had to be without blemish. That means the lamb that they chose could not be blind or lame. It could not have a skin disease, a torn ear, a crooked face. It could not have a limp. It had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It had to be the finest lamb that they could find. Unblemished. Without flaw. Any other offering would be unacceptable. Now, the Bible has many examples of people who offered unacceptable sacrifices to God. Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with fig leaves until God was able to cover it by a slaughtered animal. That's an early picture of the Gospel. Cain, we know, brought an offering of produce when God required a blood offering. Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire. In fact, a few months ago I preached a whole sermon on what God requires. So these are attempts at covering one's sin that are not according to God's will. Because God requires the right sacrifice. I always cringe when I think of those people in Mexico who walk a mile on their knees to a shrine of Mary. And you've got all these pilgrims who, who go on this pilgrimage and they leave this bloody trail behind as they go up to this idol and, and, and pray the rosary before it, thinking that somehow by their sacrifice, God is going to look down on them and be pleased with them. Or many people throughout the ages who try to gain God's favor without the right sacrifice. 
They don't think they need the spotless Lamb of God. Or maybe they do think they need it, but they need something else in addition to that. They have the Mormon church, or they have the rosary, or they have their volunteer work. And they look to those things for refuge from the coming judgment instead of obeying the divine will and taking refuge with the Lamb. None of those actions are able to cleanse a person of their sin. All other attempts to justify yourself will leave you in the camp of the Egyptians. You need to be covered by the right sacrifice. And only Jesus, the true Lamb of God, was without blemish. He had no sin. This is why it was necessary that He be born of a virgin, that He not inherit Adam's sin. This is why it was necessary that He obey God the Father in thought, word, and deed. He had to be a perfect sacrifice. And He was. The Pharisees couldn't accuse Him of sin, even though they tried. Pontius Pilate said of Him, I find no fault in this man. Even the thief on the cross declared, this man has done no wrong. Jesus is the only one who is qualified to be the right sacrifice. Listen to how the Apostle Peter describes the life and work of Christ and he, he ties it into this Exodus account. 1 Peter 1.17 And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This picture of the spotless lamb is not some sort of later Christian invention that's being smuggled into the Old Testament. But it is what the entire account points to. Jesus Christ crucified, the true Lamb of God. Now here in Exodus, we also see that after the spotless lamb is chosen, we read in verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So, the lamb was to be chosen, it was to be spotless, and then they were to bring it into their home from the 10th day of the month through the 14th day of the month. So for four days, this lamb would be in their midst. It would be eating from under their table. The children, I imagine, in the home would be playing with it after dinner. Maybe this was so that they could examine it very closely and make sure it had no defects. But I imagine it was also to give them a living illustration of the holiness of God and what their sin will cost them. Or, more specifically, what their sin will cost this innocent lamb. Think about the impression this might have on their household when their children are wondering, why is this lamb sleeping in our home? Why is this lamb eating from our table? And then taking it out on that fearful night and slaughtering it. 
I'm a city boy, not a country boy, admittedly, so these things are a little unfamiliar to me, but I watched a video some years ago of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are still a group in existence today. There's only a couple hundred of them, but they still practice animal sacrifice. And so I watched this video one time as I was doing research, and there was a long procession of these men dragging these, these uh, lambs to be slaughtered. And as they cut their throat, it was a horrific scene. Now, now granted, I, I don't, didn't grow up on a farm. I'm not familiar with slaughtering animals, so maybe it's not that big a deal if you're accustomed to it. But it was a very gruesome sight to me as this animal was being emptied of its blood and it just seemed like endless amounts just poured out as it made all these horrible sounds. It seemed like it would be a very profound illustration if God is telling you this animal has to suffer and die to cover you for your sins. Especially after you have brought this into your home and spent time with it. Almost like developing some kind of strange relationship with this animal. I imagine the kids again would be wondering, why are we doing this? And the parents would have to tell them, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the Israelites needed the right sacrifice. No other sacrifice would do. No other attempts to cover one's own sin would be acceptable. This means that your religion, your church attendance, your giving to the poor, as good as those things might be, will not be enough to atone for your sin in the sight of a holy God. You need the right sacrifice. Secondly, you need the right application. Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now drop down to verse 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So God tells the people in advance what he's going to do. He gives them warning. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A day of judgment is coming, and those who are not sheltered by the blood of the Lamb will perish. And so the people are called to respond by faith, and they are called to apply the sacrifice to their lives. The Lamb that was in their midst was to be taken at twilight. It was to be slaughtered. And so you have this picture of all of these Israelites in front of their homes at the same time slaughtering their lambs. They were to take its blood and put it on the frame of their door. And when the angel of death passed through, if any house did not have the blood of the lamb covering it, 
the firstborn in that home would die. Now, I think it's interesting that God told them to apply the blood on the outside of the frame of their door. It's almost like a picture of he who enters in through this door will be saved. Those who enter here will be delivered. I think it's also interesting that it's a public display of faith. In other words, God did not tell them to put it on the inside frame of the door. It would be impossible to be a closet Christian because painting your doorway with animal's blood would be a sure demonstration of faith for all to see. It could be an invitation for mockery for those who do not believe. Imagine the Egyptians who witnessed this. How strange this would seem to them. Your God told you to do what? Your God requires you to do this? Now, the Egyptians were far from atheistic. They had hundreds of gods. Everything from dung beetles to Pharaoh himself. And so animals and bugs and reptiles... In fact, this sheds light on the plagues because each plague that God sent was, uh, was Him showing His power over one of their gods. So the frogs and the flies and the gnats and so forth. But it's probable that this open display of faith by the Israelites was not only foolishness to the Egyptians, but it may have been offensive to the Egyptians. Back in Exodus 8, we get a glimpse into the thinking of the Egyptians. And it says in 8.26, this is Moses speaking, telling Pharaoh why they can't offer their sacrifices in Egypt. He says, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So certain animals would be an offense to the Egyptians to sacrifice because they thought they were gods. And so I think it's very plausible here that this is an act of faith done by the Israelites that would be a public demonstration of their faith but also might be perceived as offensive to the culture in which they live. And yet, isn't that always the way it is in the world? Does not the world perceive such a public demonstration of faith as foolishness? Don't they perceive our faith as somewhat offensive to their thinking? Hostility towards Christians in the marketplace who take a stand, is that not met with revolt? You stand up for marriage and family in this culture. You speak against the sexual insanity of this culture. Is that not only met with mockery, but also with some kind of offense? But we are called to publicly live out our faith just as the Israelites publicly lived out theirs. And if their message was an offense, ours is an offense as well. 
but the blood must be applied. The profession of faith we make is a public profession and not to be hidden. Jesus said if we deny Him before men, He will deny us before the Father. So we need to apply the sacrifice. We need to live out the Christian life at home, at work, and in the public square. So you have to have the right sacrifice. You have to have the right application. And thirdly, you have to have the right preparation. Look at verse 14. This shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now drop down to verse 19. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. So part of the activity of fleeing the wrath to come that God warned them about is having the right preparation. God tells them they are to avoid all leaven in their meals for seven days prior to this event and for the time when they celebrate this Passover feast. Now, why leaven? What is the point? What is the purpose of having them remove leaven from their foods and even from their houses? This is actually something that the Jews continue to practice to this day. Maybe you have Jewish friends and you are friends on Facebook, and around Passover time, they'll show pictures or a video of them sweeping their houses of all the leaven. It is deeply embedded in their tradition of Passover, and this is where it comes from. Why? Why does God have them do this? Well, one reason is that this is going to be an imminent and sudden event. In other words, they were to prepare themselves to be ready for this journey they were about to take, and even the meal that they were eating did, was not to contain leaven, which would take time to rise. And so you have unleavened bread, which was very quick to make, it's more like a cracker, and they were even to dress accordingly, so they were to have their sandals on their feet, and they were to have their staff in their hand, because when God was calling them to leave, it was going to be sudden. And so that's one reason the meal was going to be eaten in haste. In fact, we see this in chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And then if you drop down to verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. This is reflecting back. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So the picture is that they were to anticipate what God was doing. 
This was something that was going to have a sense of urgency. And so there was a, a, the concept here was to purge all of the leaven from among them. Now, I mentioned earlier that this is rich with typology, and it's really not about leaven at all. In fact, the Old Testament picture becomes the New Testament reality when we discover that leaven is representative of sin among the people. So, in God's deliverance of us, which is the fulfillment of the picture, we are to clear out sin. Paul points to this in 1 Corinthians 5. The Corinthians were boasting in God's grace and they weren't removing sin from their congregation and there was even an adulterous relationship in their church. And rather than Paul saying, you guys are doing great, your mercy for others is wonderful, he says you need to remove them from the church. We've actually talked about that recently, but I'll just read it to you again. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he tells them, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven? What is he talking about? He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see the connection there? Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, just as this Old Testament picture was that the Israelites were to be cut off from their people if they had any leaven in their homes, the New Testament picture is that we are to purge sin from our lives lest we be cut off from the people of God. And so the idea is you cannot hold on to the leaven of sin and you cannot have the blameless, spotless lamb in your place. You must forsake the sin. You must walk away from it. You must sweep your house, as it were, of any vestiges of remaining sin. You cannot serve two masters. You must flee the one to be joined to the other. So you have to have the right sacrifice. That's the spotless lamb. No other sacrifice will do. You have to have the right application, which is applying that sacrifice by faith. You have to have the right preparation, which means cleansing oneself of the leaven of sin. And finally, you have to have the right execution. The right execution. I mean execution by carrying out a plan rather than the execution of putting someone to death. But strangely, it means both in this. (laughs) Because there is the right execution by God, which is the firstborn son. But I mean the right execution of our response in doing the will of God. Verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. 
for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So the people could have the right sacrifice and the right application and all the rest, but if they did not actually leave Egypt, they would perish. They had to have the right execution in that they had to walk after God by faith. And if you look down at verse 37, it says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So God did exactly what He said He was going to do. The final judgment had come. He struck down all the firstborn in all of the homes, even the firstborn among their animals. And there was great wailing and there was great mourning throughout the land of Egypt. And through this scene of judgment, God delivers His people and they followed Him not knowing where they were going. They had His promises, they had His voice through His servant Moses, but they had to walk after God by faith. They had to trust Him and go outside of the borders of Egypt. And so in the same way, God calls us to believe, God calls us to look to the right sacrifice, but it always results in us leaving Egypt behind It always results in us following after the ways of God. You cannot end up in the promised land if you do not follow the God who leads us there. Many people want the benefit of the sacrifice, but they are unwilling to follow the God who leads them. Now picture... What a morbid scene this was as the Israelites were leaving Egypt. Hundreds of thousands of them at dawn leaving through the aftermath of this plague. In fact, Moses records for us in another account the contrast between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Those who escaped the judgment and those who received it. You don't have to turn there, but this is Numbers 33.3. Moses is recounting these events. He says, They set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So imagine this scene as a new day is dawning. Hundreds of thousands of people leaving this nation. They've got their children with them. They have their livestock with them. And what do they see as they are leaving? They see thousands of families outside of their homes. They see thousands of people burying their dead. They see mothers weeping over their sons. 
they see a child limp in his father's arms. A scene of doom and tragedy. Maybe a wife wakes up that morning and shakes her husband who never wakes up. Their animals destroyed, some of their children destroyed, and we are told there was not a house where there was not someone dead. And through this picture of death, God leads His people out of this darkness to a land of promise. He leads them out so that they are no longer slaves in Egypt, but they are to become children of the living God. And as we read of such things, it should give us pause. We should remember that God's judgments are very real. His requirements of atonement are absolutely necessary. And here we are being led to this heavenly Canaan. And we have the carnage of death all around us. We have death in the air. We have people perishing. The dead are burying their dead. And we, like the Israelites, have an opportunity to call out to the people to come and leave Egypt, to come and follow Christ. In Exodus 12.38 it says, a mixed multitude also went up with them. A mixed multitude. So this was a group that probably consisted of other kinds of slaves in Egypt, maybe from other nations. It probably consisted of sojourners in Egypt, and I imagine some Egyptians themselves. Maybe some who had endured those previous plagues had recognized the God of Israel is the true God. Maybe some recognized that which Pharaoh was unwilling to recognize for so long. And so they go out with this massive throng of redeemed people toward the promised land, forsaking the idols of Egypt. So, just like that, we too are called to reach out to neighbors, reach out to co-workers, reach out to this world of hopelessness and death, and call them to come. Now, we as Christians no longer celebrate this Passover. I read verses about how God said that His people are going to celebrate this Passover all the way to the end. But do we celebrate this Passover? Well, in a sense, we do. Not the Passover as God delivering Israel from Egypt. That is the antitype. In other words, that is the symbol, the picture. But the reality is another Passover Another meal that was instituted by Christ, which we know as communion. The true deliverance from death. The true deliverance from slavery. The true deliverance from our real taskmasters of sin and death. The night before Jesus died, He had the Passover with His disciples and He instituted this new meal. All of that in Exodus was pointing to something greater. All of that had a future fulfillment which came in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It wasn't blood on the doorposts that we were to put, but it was blood on our very hearts. It wasn't a lamb we were to consume in the meal, but Jesus, the true Lamb of God, who took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in memory of me. He is the Lamb we are to partake of. And as we do come to that meal, what are we called to do? We are called to purge ourselves of sin. We are called to examine ourselves, to examine our own very lives and cleanse out all of that leaven. And instead of God killing the firstborn son as a judgment, what does God do? He gives His firstborn son in place of undeserving sinners. So that whoever comes to Him by faith, whoever applies His sacrifice, will have eternal life. I want to ask you, do you have the Lamb of God today? Has His blood been applied to your heart and to your life? Are you finding the refuge from God's wrath in His firstborn Son? Have you cleansed your heart of leaven? Have you followed God by faith, anticipating the promised land? If that is not you today, God welcomes you. This sacrifice is for you. He calls to all peoples, if anyone comes to me, I will never turn them away. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the invitation to all today. And if that already is your story, if that already is part of your history, yes, you are in Christ, yes, you have embraced the Lamb then you can sing along with the church throughout the ages. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lamb that was slain. Let us pray. Oh, it's such good news, Lord. It is all so good. The songs we sing, the word we preach. I pray if there's any here who are estranged from you, that they would join in this throng that is heading towards your promised land, that they would join in with the spiritual Israelites, and that they would partake of your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.